This is an ABC podcast. Thomas Carlson is mucking about with a skull cap and a bunch of wires. He's interested in people's brains and how they respond to deception. He's specifically interested in digital trickery, deep fakes, images and videos that are not quite what they seem. And with the equipment he's rigged up, he's curious to see what parts of a person's grey matter light up given certain stimuli. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense. Basically, what these electrodes are measuring are little tiny electrical currents that are being generated by the brain. So the neurons in the brain are kind of like, think of them almost like little magnets. There's a, they have a positive end, negative end, and when a bunch of them start firing all together, they generate a little tiny magnet, which generates a little electric current, and then the EEG has sensors on the scalp, pick up these little tiny currents, and then they feed them into a recording. And from there, we analyse the data. Carlson's research has been focused on how the brain responds when a person is presented with two images, images of faces, one of which is real and the other, well, the other is not real. It's a fake. And the main findings were behaviourally, if you just show two images to a person, they really couldn't tell the difference between a deep fake and a real image. But if we actually looked at brain activity, there were differences between deep fakes and images of real people in terms of how the brain actually responded to the two images, such that we could actually distinguish whether a person was looking at a deep fake or a real image based solely looking at the brain activity. So what's happening is the generation of the deep fakes, there's, you know, like I said, there's something You know, I don't want to say unconscious, but there's something else that the brain is sort of detecting. You could call it unconscious if you wanted to. But whatever's happening in the brain that, you know, we can use our algorithms to distinguish, it's it's not coming up to the conscious level so that people can actually use it for actual reporting whether or not it's a deep fake or it's not a deep fake. So if your brain can pick a fake roughly 54% of the time, according to Professor Carlson's research... Why doesn't it sound an alarm? Why the disconnect? The real thing that it tells me is what's happening with deep fakes is because deep fakes are generated by a computer, they are going to have some certain sort of regularities or similarities about them that are not going to be seen in natural images, such that when you compare you know, the brain's activation to a natural image and a deep fake, the brain is actually able to distinguish the two because one is coming from what you know, they would call a generative model. It's a computer that's making an image that it thinks looks like a real face. But there are certain you know, regularities in that model that distinguish them from real faces that you know, happen in the natural world. Where to from here for this kind of research? I think the most interesting thing is to really sort of deep dive and figure out what are the differences that the brain's picking up on to distinguish between deep fakes and real images. And this is where it sort of becomes a battle and a long-term war, because as we sort of figure out what's wrong with deep fake images, then the people that make the deep fakes 
sort of make those corrections. And then we try to find some other way to distinguish deepfakes from real images. And then the other side, again, tries to make those corrections. So the interesting thing is sort of, first of all, learning, you know, what is it exactly is it that the brain is sort of picking up on, which notably, you know, you or me sitting as an observer, we don't see those differences. Something in the brain is saying there's something wrong with this image. And yeah, the exciting bit is sort of figuring out exactly what the brain is keying in on to distinguish between the deep fakes and the real images. There are ways that you can turn these into tools to sort of, you know, help identify these deep fakes. One way is, I would say they're more of sort of an augmentation in that with the, the low accuracy, it's really hard to confidently say, yes, this is absolutely a deep fake or yes, absolutely, this is a real image. But it might be, you know, something that could be developed to give like an indicator that, you know, you should sort of follow up a little more. I remember a great quote from an army group that was working on lie detection. And she said her systems weren't there to detect lies. They were basically there to tell the officers whether they should ask another question. So that they should continue that interview and kind of keep pursuing it. And it's the same thing with this sort of this technology could possibly be used for. So maybe you can't say absolutely this is a deep fake or a real image, but it maybe a little yellow light comes on and says, hey, you should scrutinize a little bit further, maybe ask another question or find some other form of verification that what you're looking at is real or fake. We keep hearing that deep fakes are a threat to our sense of what's real and what's not real, further impeding our ability to detect disinformation and, as such, a threat to democracy itself. But how sophisticated are they really? How widespread is their use and how dangerous? In this episode, a bit of a reality check. Of course, fakes and forgeries have been around for millennia. So what defines what we in the 21st century call a deep fake? Well, here's a pretty good definition from the team at ABC's Behind the News. Deepfakes use artificial intelligence or AI software to analyse and map people's faces and use that information to create a convincing fake. The usage isn't that widespread yet, but it's starting to be. And one of the reasons is because the apps that allow people to make deepfakes are becoming more and more sophisticated and much easier to use. Rob Cover from RMIT University in Melbourne. Every time we try and shut down an app, we find another app comes about. So the uptake is pretty significant and, you know, we can suspect that maybe in about five to ten years we're going to see far more sophisticated and more common use of deepfakes. There have been concerns expressed in the past, particularly around election time, of the use of deepfakes. And I know there was a deepfake of President Zelensky in the Ukraine crisis that was used on social media, but they don't seem to have had a significant impact to date, do they? No, not so far. There is no evidence that elections have been disrupted significantly by the existence of deepfakes. And it's, of course, a bit worrying about whether we could actually even police it. In California, it's illegal to post or distribute any deepfake video of a political candidate within 60 days of an election. But no one's quite sure who will do the policing of that and how it can be policed and, you know, uh, what sort of charges can happen and how you can recompense that politician in those 60 days anyway. 
there will always be bad faith actors, no matter what or how good a new technology is, or no matter how good the software to try to track and trace problematic uses. One of the issues here is simply that it's becoming much easier, isn't it, to produce a deep fake? And I know if you just Google deep fake apps, you'll find heaps of them on offer. So that's, a, that's an issue in terms of the, I guess you would say, for want of a better word, democratisation of this kind of, of technology. It is. And, you know, and of course, it's you know, not necessarily a bad thing that it's available. But one of the problems I often have with how we talk about deepfakes is that it's treated as if it's some kind of alien technology that's disrupting the normal flows of communication or truth or reporting. But the reality is they're a natural outcome of our deep-seated desires to play with texts. You know, we've been manipulating and changing and borrowing and remixing texts since the advent of the video recorder in the 1970s. And that's usually been for creative purposes. And as human beings, we want to be part of storytelling. We want to change stories or embellish them or play with them. And so developing the new tools that work more efficiently to do that is just part of responding to that cultural desire. But the problem being that when we do have bad faith actors out there, they will be used for surreptitious or illegal purposes. In other words, as the old adage would have it, all technology is neutral. It's neither good nor bad. How it's used, though, well, that's where questions of politics and morality come in. I'm Linda Lee, and I'm senior lecturer at Nottingham Business School at Nottingham Trent University. My focus is thinking about deep fakes from a technology standpoint and what businesses can do productively with that technology. And according to Dr Lee, the opportunities presented by deep fake technology are many and diverse. Let's use a business example of audiobooks. Quite often in an audiobook, you have a non-celebrity reading the book. And let's say you record that non-celebrity and that person uses whatever pauses and inflections that are needed for that book, then the audiobook can then swap out the non-celebrity with a celebrity. So let's say you have an audiobook with multiple characters. So you could have the voice change for each character. So it could be younger or older, male or female with different accents. The business opportunity there is that instead of using a very expensive celebrity, to do something like an audiobook, you can license the right to use their voice as the deep fake, which would be less expensive than having the celebrities spend hours recording that. And also, instead of using multiple people to record something, you can use one person and use the deep fake to change the voices depending on your needs. So there is a productivity advantage there. Another form could be if we're keeping on the topic of audio deepfakes, the second one would be text to speech, where you can change recorded audio by typing in new text. And of course, text to speech already exists. So you can have your computer read out text, but it sounds like a computer voice because it uses pre recorded sounds and then puts them together into new sentences. With deepfake text to speech, the text can sound like whatever desired voice the AI has been trained on. So unlike existing text-to-speech, you're not limited by the sounds that have already been recorded. So an example is Project Revoice, which helps people with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. 
So one of the symptoms of ALS is that people lose their ability to speak. And when they do, they often use the traditional text-to-speech, which is the um, computer voice. So Stephen Hawking is an example of someone with this computer voice. So what Project Revoice found is that when people lose their ability to speak, they feel that they've lost what makes them human. So with deep fake text-to-speech, you can record someone's voice at the early stages of the disease. And when that person can no longer speak, they can still sound like themselves with the help of the deep fake. Now, that's an interesting example because we do tend to think that if there are advantages for this or opportunities, it will be in the, the entertainment sector. But as you point out, there are health implications. Yeah, and, and so it's only limited by what people's imaginations are. And yes, there are entertainment applications like, and these are much more mundane, which is you can change spoken words in a recording. Let's say someone misspoke a word or you wanted to change a script after the fact. You can do that with text-to-speech rather than having the voice actor making a new recording. So that one's less exciting. I think the Project Revoice is a more exciting example. So the well-established concerns about deepfakes aside, what overall potential do you see for this technology in the future? I mean, are we really just at the beginning of seeing how it can be used in a creative way? The technology is still fairly new. It's not perfect yet. And yes, there have been fraudulent uses of deepfake technology, but in order for it to be used in business applications, it does need to be almost perfect. And we also need to consider ethical issues like figuring out how to license the right to use the deepfakes and also disclosures so that the viewer of a deepfake will know that they're viewing a deepfake. Because those are things we still have to figure out. Because just like with photographs, in order to use somebody else's copyright, you need to obtain the copyright license in order to do so. And I'm not sure how far along the law is with regard to making use of all of this in an ethical way. I mean, I know what one needs to do, but I don't know if the law has come along at the same time. Which brings us back to the point that the development and use of deepfake technology isn't a black and white issue. Jeff Hancock is based at Stanford University in the US, and he heads up their social media lab. Yeah, I thank you for tackling this topic and raising it in that way too, because I think a lot of time it is used in a moral panic way where it's about fear and I think that fear approach to this just undermines our trust in media, which is part of the problem. And I think we more we talk about things like deep fake and misinformation without putting into some context, we you know kind of undermine the very thing we're doing right now, even talking on the media. And so I think it's important that we take it with some context. Hollywood is delighted by the movie making potential of deep fakes. But in Washington, the tech is increasingly viewed as dangerous and subversive. You blame me for interfering with your democracy. The deepfakes plays into the hands of anybody, any state sponsor, any institution. The world of computation for visual media has really advanced in just the last year. So it's pretty clear that in a relatively short period of time, these systems with the 
advances of AI, we'll be able to create very realistic human video. So that will happen. It looks to be quite likely. So there are some real threats. The first one that people think about are political. What if you see a political leader doing something and it's a, a deep fake? I actually think that is the area that we're going to be okay on. There's a number of people and, and research programs working to combat that. So Hanny Farid at UC Berkeley here in California has come up with one way where they analyze world leaders. And so these are the people most likely to be targeted. And it turns out that we have really cool sort of visual fingerprints, so to speak. So when here in the US, President Biden speaks, he moves in certain ways and that can actually be really easily tracked. And as soon as you try to deep fake that, it throws the fingerprint off and they can very quickly identify that that is a deep fake. Where I think the, the bigger threat is going to be is around interpersonal things. So one of the ways that I'm most worried about are things like revenge porn. And there it's about putting somebody you know or somebody that you're targeting and you're putting their face onto some person performing in an adult video. And that kind of thing is going to be really difficult to combat, I believe, and, and can cause you know a lot of harm for individuals. So those are two of the things that are being talked a lot about, uh, at least here in the US. And the social impacts when you're talking about the representation of a person in uh, an act that they, they didn't commit, say a revenge porn, the implications of that can be quite significant for a person's mental health as, as well as reputation, can't it? Devastating, absolutely devastating. And uh, that's the thing that I think I worry the most about is that person bears all the costs, the reputation costs, the mental health harm. And they have very little resources, you know, in, in, in one way where, say, a world leader has, a, you know, a government and a small tech army working to identify and combat deepfakes against them. An individual has very little recourse on taking it down or any, any kind of, you know, proof that that's not them. And so I think that's an area that we really are working hard on, but I don't see a clear solution yet. But in terms of the sort of world elites, I think we have some good solutions in place. Is it possible that just like advertising, many of us will just become skeptical about video footage in general, that we'll just look at it and we'll immediately think, oh, perhaps it's not quite correct. And if so, what would be the implications of that? Yeah, I think that's a really great question. I like the relationship to advertising. There was a point, you know, in the 40s where people were, you know, concerned enough with advertising that, it, you know, we thought about banning it. And then we realized, okay, well, you know, we just need to make clear that what's advertising and people can adjust to that. And and now, you know, when we see advertising, we don't automatically believe that, <laughs> you know, that's the best car or that's the best soda or something like that. We are like, okay, they're advertisers. They're trying to convince us of, of things. So I do think there's some literacy that will take place where we'll be able to judge video and not say, okay, now that I've seen it on video, it therefore must be true. And we'll realize that that it would just be one piece of evidence. We need to find others. So I hope that in some sense we'll be like advertising where we learn to deal with this new form of media. And, you know, I think back to the very first video that was ever shown to anyone, the very first movie, it was a train coming in uh, along the tracks. The reaction of the people in the theater, they all screamed because they thought the train, you know, was going to come in and run them over. None of us do that anymore. 
And we all see deep fake technology being used in movies and TVs, and we don't think, oh, that must have actually happened. We've adjusted. So that's one thing I think that's important to remember is we as humans, we can adapt and adjust to these new forms of media. From video now to audio. I work on a team that has developed a technique to detect audio deepfakes using fundamental fluid dynamics in biological limitations of the human body. This allows us to determine whether or not a piece of audio is computer generated or if it was actually made by a human, allowing us to verify the origins of political statements, people on the other end of phone calls, etc. My name is Logan Blue and I work at the University of Florida. In comparison to the video side, the audio side is actually a little more complex from an attacker point of view, just because we don't have the individual frames that we get in video. So it's actually more sophisticated on that aspect. That also kind of means that right now they're a little more immature than what we see on the, the video side. But we think they pose just as much of a threat, if not more of a threat. In order to generate a audio deepfake, you actually need less data in a lot of a lot of the cases. So the model we actually used in our work that we were you know, testing against actually only required 10 to 20 seconds of audio to complete a deepfake. Now, of course, getting more of the speaker's voice or more audio into the system could and probably will result in a better deepfake, but it's going to come down to individual model-to-model -model differences. On how these deepfakes are generated, they effectively have two logical steps. The first step is extracting what makes our voices unique. So why does my voice sound the way it does? What does your voice sound the way it does? And a lot of that is things like pitch, tempo, accents, stuff like that. How often do we mess up certain phonemes, et cetera. To get all that out, an attacker who's generating a deepfake basically drops us into a specialized machine learning model. So they take some of your audio and they run through this model that pulls all that information out and distills it down into what we call a speaker embedding. Then to actually generate the fake audio itself, the fake speech, they effectively use a modified text-to-speech algorithm. So if you've ever had your phone read to you your incoming text message, that same underlying technology, that same underlying process is just being slightly modified to take in that speaker embedding and alter its output to sound like you know the victim speaker in this case. And how sophisticated is deepfake audio at this particular stage? So at this stage, it's kind of in its infancy. We're seeing a lot of interesting pieces come out of the space for legitimate use. We've actually seen some real-world attacks in 2019. There was a company in the UK who had their CEO deepfaked and was used to effectively approve a wire transfer of money to some attackers. So we're starting to see these attacks both enter the real world and deployed like in the wild, as we say. But on top of that, these techniques that they're based off of are not that old. They're realistically, the foundations are maybe five years old. So I expect to see more deepfakes, especially in the audio space moving forward. And I expect them to get significantly better over the next years to come. And that would include real-time conversion so that a deepfake could actually have a conversation with a person? Yes. So models today can do everything from generate a deepfake in sub one second. So as long as you can type out your response fast enough, you potentially could have a conversational deepfake model. If not today, be very close to it or do it in the next coming few years. So it's really how fast can you type and how fast can your model run? Let's talk about your research, the research that you're part of. Now, you've been working 
to try and develop a way of differentiating human speech from deep fake speech. Could I get you to explain, first of all, your approach? So the approach we took is a little different than the rest of the community at the time. So most of the community has been using a lot of signal processing techniques or other machine learning models to try to detect small errors in the waveforms you're generating or patterns that wouldn't normally exist. We kind of took a step back. And for me, I did my undergrad in mechanical engineering. So I've done fluid dynamics. I've done vibrations. So our detector works by effectively trying to recreate what vocal tract made a piece of audio. So when we have a piece of audio, a piece of speech that's in question, we will pull out a small sliver of it and we will then pose the question, what vocal tract did I need to make this sound? So instead of going from the anatomy to audio, we figured out a way to go backwards and go from the audio back to the anatomy. Once we have that basically reconstruction of the vocal tract, given that during that small piece of speech, we can pose the question of, does this effectively fit within the biological limitations of humans? And we found that deepfakes typically don't fit that mold, and so they don't look anything like humans. So even though the sound to a human ear is identical or, or very similar, the background, if you like, like the fingerprints of the audio, for want of a better term, are very different between a deepfake and a real human voice. Yeah, so probably the best way to think about it is when humans listen to audio and the way we process it, we pull out the macroacoustic features, right? where the main frequencies are and a couple of higher level things about the audio, which is how we discern both what's being said and also who's saying it. Where the deepfakes are failing is in the microstructure. So how little changes in the fluid dynamics result in very small changes in the frequencies and the way the audio behaves, those small changes are where they're messing up. I know this is ongoing research, but what sort of success rate have you had in picking deepfakes? We're right now working on deploying this with some early adopters to try testing this in the field and other applications. But in our own actual research, we've shown that we were able to detect upwards of 99% of deepfakes that come in front of us. And how do you see this technology being used? By whom? We see this being used in a couple of different ways. The first of which is this would be great for anyone who wants to do speaker authentication, right? So this is banks, this is any infrastructure projects. So communications and things like that, that's a great place to know that this is a actual human on the line and not necessarily machine generated. We also would expect to see this happen in basically like fact checking, making sure that this piece of audio is actually from the original speaker, or at least from a human speaker as sort of like a first pass to make sure that this is above board and a proper piece of audio. It's always the case in my view that, you know, these are tools, very, very powerful tools, and they can be used by us to harm or to help. And the more we can use these and, and develop these technologies, educate people and create, you know, government policy to have these collaborate and augment our abilities rather than undermine each other, the better everyone off is going to be. And, you know, one last point there is we have all kinds of inequalities in societies as we're recognizing more and more. And I worry a little bit that AI will be more in the hands of those with the resources already and we'll see more inequity. So I hope that as people develop AI, they think about how to get these AI systems into more diverse communities that are perhaps a little less resourced. 
like I say, we are seeing more and more sophisticated use of deepfakes, and that's just part of the digital culture we're in. There's a way of looking at it, really, that's, uh, I, I like to use the, the term push and pull, that, you know, no matter how often you try to develop something to help us detect a problem, someone develops a workaround for it. Yeah, and we did that with digital rights management right throughout the 90s and 2000s. And, you know, that hasn't really stopped people sharing content without paying for it. The same thing is going to happen with deepfakes. We'll develop new software that, you know, that might be, say, apps on browsers to alert us that this has all the hallmarks of a deepfake. Be careful about what you are watching. And you know, someone will develop a new element of that technology that will help work around that detection. So they're going to be with us and we're not going to see them stamped out. So that's why thinking about how we are more literate users of digital media is going to be part of the picture and how we can encourage people to perhaps be better online citizens and not share content that's not quite right. Rob Cover there. We also heard today from Jeff Hancock, Logan Blue, Linda Lee and Thomas Carlson. My co-creator here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.